Happy Father's Day. Good morning. Glad to see you. Ha, of course I can't see you, but I imagine you, and I want to wish you a happy Father's Day, you and your family. I guess I should give myself a pat on the back because I'm a father, but I've been thinking about the fact that I, as a son, probably don't see my father as well as my father sees the way he fathered me. I sometimes wonder how my son will talk about me and whether it will match the way I think I have fathered my son. With that in mind, I wanted to read in something that uh, I discovered this, this past week written by Matt Younger. It bears on this, and then I'm going to transition to what we're going to look at this morning as we uh, will turn our attention to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He writes, I don't feel like I really know your story until I hear about your dad. Was he the quintessential hero? Have you already started writing his biography? Is he the obvious namesake of your firstborn son? I hope so. These are my favorite stories. Others are more painful to hear. Some father wounds are so pronounced that they leave no appropriate timetable for healing. And we bank on the promise of a future resurrection guaranteeing its certainty. If this is your story, then I'm sorry, and I'm only partially writing to you. In my experience, it seems that most describe a lukewarm father who was neither completely absent nor completely present. It's not that he was terrible. He just wasn't a standout. Some days he was hard to trust and hard to follow. His shortcomings inflicted wounds that became scars. And from these scars, we tell our stories. Your story is shaped by the dad who chose or chose not to raise you. There's no getting around this. He influenced your life for better or worse. But as I hear your stories, I've noticed a trend. Some of us are spending too much time on the worst parts of dad, especially when they might explain the less flattering parts of ourselves. Maybe you think you, you'd be less irritable if your father hadn't been so angry all the time, or more disciplined if he hadn't been so lazy. Many of us could fill in the blanks with something. If, if dad hadn't been, I'd be more. There's no question that many of us experienced less than ideal childhoods, but plenty have nursed these wounds long enough. Healing comes over time with the right balm and requisite patience. But even our smallest wounds become nasty and infected when we aggravate them and let them fester. For some of us, 
One of the easiest and sometimes cheapest ways to justify our shortcomings is to overemphasize what dad didn't do well. I've personally been guilty of that. He continues, shifting blame runs in our collective family history. Adam blamed his wife for their unfavorable circumstances too. He was cursed by the consequences of his own free choice, yet he elevated Eve's indiscretions to save face and repel the sting of his shame. Despite Eve's failure, God still held Adam accountable, whose blood still courses through our veins to this day. Fortunately, there's great news. God knew all about your dad before you did. He never needed your father to be perfect and won't allow you to blame your shortcomings on him. Where your father consistently failed, God is grieved by the fractured image of fatherhood. But please don't confuse a shadow with its substance. God himself intends to accentuate every fatherly triumph and make up for every fatherly failure. He is our perfect father. Being the apple of his eye comes standard with our adoption, not to mention an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance thanks to Jesus your sacrificial brother. This news should invite gratitude and perspective in every detail of your story, especially when it comes to your dad. When your dad was a hero, thank God for a preview of his greater joy and glory. And when your dad failed, be thankful for the certainty that God never has or will. Let the balm of a perfect father heal any wounds from your own, and be careful when confidently explaining away your failures by his. We're more sinful and weak than we'll ever know. If I ever had the chance to meet your dad, I hope we would talk about you I hope he'd describe a son or daughter who lived forgivingly and talked about grace often. Squeeze out every possible gift God has given you through your earthly father. If possible, let him know of the gratitude in your heart. Gratitude, after all, makes the wounds of a savior and smiles of a father all the more clear. I would add, come to think of it, I know many of you through your fathers because I know your fathers more than I know you. But as Matt Younger wrote, many more, many more of you would be better known or your stories better understood if we knew about your fathers. This writing of Matt Younger made me want to know about the father of St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Paul who wrote this epistle. I think it would be so interesting to see 
the influences upon the Apostle Paul that were there even before Paul met Jesus Christ risen from the dead on the road to Damascus. I'll bet in some ways the fruit didn't fall far from the tree. But Christ radically changed Paul, changed his past, tempered a lot of the influences, perhaps erased some. Christ changed everything about Paul. It's hard for us to draw a trajectory to his past, except for those that he himself draws, when Christ is so prominent in his life. So much has Christ changed Paul And we see what kind of a man he is and the influence that he had on the people around him, even these Philippians, that it seems to me that a sincere follower of Christ, being a sincere follower of Christ, would qualify anyone to be a good dad or good mom. There's no evidence that Paul had any children of his own, but he was a father, a spiritual one. In fact, in this very letter, Timothy, in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul speaks of, he, he says, and I quote, like a son working with his father. Sounds like a pretty close relationship. And then again, in a letter close in proximity, he writes, I became his father in jail, speaking of Onesimus. And he writes, he was useless to you before, but now is useful, not only to me, but you as well. Paul had such an impact on Onesimus that his life was in many ways transformed. He became something of a new person, a new creature in Christ. That expresses that life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It also expresses the positive influence of Paul. And we emphasize that as we looked at the first part of chapter 4 last Sunday. Paul's influence was obviously enhanced where people admired Paul. They listened more closely. They were interested in the wisdom he would impart. I imagine in some cases, their lives were catapulted in growth by following what Paul encouraged them to do. There's a lot to admire in Paul, and there's even more, and that's what I want us to look at in verses 10 through 13 of Philippians chapter 4. Let me read them to you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In other words, I'm content in all circumstances in all situations. But he continues, you had no opportunity. And he says, 
I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content because I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is a very joyful letter. It's a short letter, but 15 times Paul mentions the word joy or rejoice. Even here he begins the close of his letter, and he says, I rejoiced greatly, and these are the most important words, in Christ. As citizens... We see an example in Paul of the governance of God. And I use that expression because this closes out our series uh, called As Citizens from Paul's letter to the Philippians. As citizens, Paul says, enjoy, enjoy God's governance. Enjoy the governance of God. Because we are all under him, and it is that he is the king of the kingdom, and we are his citizens, and he is a benevolent king. He's not a tyrant. He is a benevolent king who wants the very best for us. And yet sometimes we bristle under the notion of governance, but we should not when it is the benevolent governance of God. And it is to that governance I think Paul is appealing because his joy is in Christ. He, as we will see, his motives, his secret, his uh, uh, secret in life, and his power is all governed by the governance of of God in his life through Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 11, he uses a word that is, was often used by other philosophical schools, especially the Stoics, and it talks about, well, you could call it uh, independence. Uh, you could call it self-sufficiency. But for Paul, it's a sufficiency. It's an independence that is grounded in God. And so in verse 11, he says, I'm satisfied. That's how we may translate that word. I'm, I'm independently satisfied in, in Christ in all circumstances. I'm God-sufficient is what Paul is saying. And that's because... Paul, under God's governance, sees all of his circumstances from the slant or through the lens or perspective of what God is doing in his life. If we could do that, if we could see all of our moments, if we could graph all of our moments in life and trust them to God, wow, that grid would be such a wisdom, a map of God's wisdom in our life, and we, would, we could use it in a way to look back and look forward with the days that remain. As citizens, enjoy the governance of God. 
Paul writes about his motive, his secret, and his power, and I want us to look first at verses 10 and 11, what I'm calling my motive. I'm not, he says, uh, he says, not that I'm in need. Not that I'm in need. And he goes on to talk about how he's satisfied, whether he is brought low or lifted high. We talk in, uh, and you hear it, here and there. Uh, sometimes you, you hear it with respect to polit- politics. You, ha- you hear it with respect to uh, a public persona. We talk about the word optics. Optics have to do with how it looks or how it will play. But what is really more important is what are the motives. Optics often conceal why it is we do what we do. And that is very, very important. And that's what Paul is bringing to the forefront. He doesn't want the Philippians to misunderstand him. He wants them to know his motives. And he makes it very clear that his wants are not at play in what he has to say to them. When he talks to them about their, the ways that they have supported and encouraged him. Paul wants to remove, you could say, and we talked about this uh, a couple, two or three Sundays ago when we were in Philippians. Paul wants to remove any suspicion as to what makes him tick, what makes him say what he says, and what makes him do what he does. Paul says, I'm not motivated by these things. I am motivated by these other things. And he wants to take our focus off of anything that would confuse our understanding of Paul's heart. And he wants to put it on his heart and what really is influential, the real power in his life. One of the most beautiful things about Christ that we must never lose sight of is that in Christ, he gives us a new heart. In your life and in mine, we need to give people a good read of our heart. What's in our hearts helps people interpret who we are and what we do. It helps them to see what's going on behind our face. For me, it's very valuable. And this is a pro tip. Just, uh, you know, I'm going to throw this out there free of charge. It's been very, very valuable as a leader, as a pastor, as a teacher, as an administrator, as a husband, even as a father, especially as a father, as a friend. It's very important to let people see my heart and know how to interpret what they see on the surface. And sometimes we as parents, when it comes to correcting our children, it's very important to show our heart, help them understand. In leading, in administration, sometimes you are bringing decisions 
it's very important to let them see what's behind the decision. What are the interests and the motives behind that decision? How often are friendships thwarted or confused by unclear motives or misunderstanding? Paul clears that all away. He shows them his heart here. What really motivates him, that's good for us to know. And that's why I wanted us to see what Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11 when he speaks about my motive. My secret, he talks about in verse 12. I've learned the secret. Paul's got a secret, but he shares it. In fact, when he says, and we translated, I, you know, uh, I've learned, uh, I've learned the secret. I know the secret. The word that is translated, I know the secret, I've learned the secret, it's a technical term, and it comes from general, especially ancient Greek uh, use of the language to talk about initiation into the sacred rites of ancient mystery religions. Scholars would love to know more about the mystery religions, what went on through those rites, but they were all kept secret. And nobody who was initiated ever wrote about them. But Paul uses this term, and I think it really beefs up what he's saying. He says, I've learned the secret, the secret of contentment. Fathers, what's your secret? What makes you tick? We could ask that question of anybody. As we saw when uh, I was reading Matt Younger's piece, he wanted to know the story. And there's kind of a secret to every story. Our fathers, the influence that they've had on our lives. What influence they have in our lives, not only growing up, but our lives today. Either following or perhaps uh, unfollowing our fathers. But this is true in all areas of our lives. It's so important to let people know what makes us tick. To let them know the secrets that we have to life. The good secrets. The secrets that make us tick. I never knew what made my father tick. I want to encourage you fathers to share with, the, with your children, not just with friends, but with your children. Maybe with your spouses. Uh, share what makes you tick. Share the secrets of life that give life to who you are. Because secrets can be very powerful. Secrets can bring life to a person. And in that case, sometimes we want to hoard those secrets because they boost us, they build us up. 
They help us get ahead, so we don't want to share them. But there are other secrets that don't bring life, but bring death. And so we want to hide those. They have a different kind of power, a harming power, because they want those secrets make us want to hide a false life. Beware of those secrets that bring death. Share those secrets that bring life, that have helped you excel, be a better person, make more of life, walk more closely with Christ, etc. When it comes to secrets, I think of a word. It's a, become kind of a favorite of mine in the Greek language. It's actually two words put together. It's the word son and to judge. And it really, the, 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 the simple sense of it is examined in the son, and we translate it sincere. We're sincere people when we're open and examined by the sun. Of course, we would examine by bright lights or all manner of things, but in antiquity, when that word was formed and translated the notions of sincerity, it had to do with the brightest light available, available the midday sun. Things seen in the midday sun are clear and open and sincere and honest. What's Paul's secret? He has a changed heart, and it's a heart that's governed by the power of Jesus Christ, and it brings him great contentment, and he is able to open up and share himself in ways that often we become clogged with doing as we chase after the world in so many ways instead of centering our lives on Jesus Christ. He speaks about contentment and I'm going to deal with what he has to say under the power of Paul's life. My power, as he put it in verse 13, my strength to handle all things is found in my relationship with him who grants me the power I need. That's the way I would truly translate that. It's not as uh, uh, spunky as uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but it's really better, a better translation. My strength to handle all things, which is really in the flow of what he's been saying in verses 10, 11, and 12, is found. My strength, my capability for handling these things is found in my relationship with him who is my strength, who gives me the strength to do all the things that life meets me and calls me to do. What's your power? Paul's power was the source of his contentment. Paul's joy that he opens this little section here in verse 10 with, Paul's joy is evidence of that contentment. He counts it a blessing. Just that he should be overjoyed about these things, I don't know. In our current society, it's uh, kind of hard to get excited about things unless, you know, we're showered with gifts or we get a brand new car or something we've been dreaming about and hoping for because we're basically an ungrateful people. And we have so many blessings 
that we can't even see him. We're blind to the blessings of God in our lives. We're looking for blessings beyond the rainbow, and we're in many ways discontented, discouraged, and we feel perhaps ignored if we have to wait for something or look for something because we're looking well beyond all the things that we have the freedom and the privilege to enjoy each and every day. We don't get too excited about those things unless we're deprived of them. Maybe this pandemic has given us a little taste of what we've taken for granted. Maybe it is a lens through which to see our lives as they have been, as they are, and maybe as they will be in a better light in a clearer way, and particularly as those who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Contentment is the absence of comparison. And it doesn't always come out as comparison, but there's a lot of comparing going on. Comparing now with then, or what we had. We don't like what is because of what we had. We had so much more. But even when things are at their best, we tend to compare with people who have more because we're not content with what we have. We think it's, yeah, so-so compared to what so-and-so says or has over here. Comparison kills Contentment. Comparison kills contentment. Contentment is recognizing the blessing of God in our lives. Comparison is ignoring it or overlooking it. And comparison is a symptom of greed. Greed meaning I need or I want more. It's the evil eye. The evil eye in antiquity, even the evil eye Paul writes about in Galatians, although it's not always translated that way. But the evil eye, the the fact they would would have apotropaic uh, charms and things. Apotropaic means to avert the gaze. It was meant to attract the attention so they wouldn't look at you. But the whole idea of the evil eye is very familiar to us, even though we don't call it that. It goes like this, I want what you have. That's the evil eye. I want what you have. I want your spouse. I want your children. I want your things. I want the things that you enjoy to be the things I enjoy. That's what's called the evil eye. The Bible calls it covetousness. Basically, the saddest thing about it is it means I'm dissatisfied with what God intended to be blessings in my life and blessings that would bring joy. We are all blessed by God. The power of God's blessing is unleashed. It is activated. It is triggered by seeing the blessing of what God has already granted us, instead of looking beyond. How, you may ask, 
are we to recognize these blessings by giving thanks? And that unleashes joy as well. It unleashes what we, what we call gratitude. But here's the thing that I hope you'll really get. If we do not give thanks, we are ungrateful. And we become the one thing that is wrong with the blessing of God when we are ungrateful. You'll have to ponder this perhaps. Because if you don't see it as a blessing, then you won't recognize, obviously, that it is a blessing. But what I want you to appreciate is it is a blessing from God. And the reason you don't recognize it as a blessing, and the reason the blessing isn't at operating in your life, is because you are the one who doesn't recognize the blessing. You are the glitch in God's blessing. You are the malfunction in God's blessing. And just like me, when I hear that squeak in the car and I take it to the mechanic and I say, can you figure out what's going on and fix it? And the mechanic, when I go to pick up the car, says, I'm sorry, I couldn't diagnose it. I couldn't find it because I could never get it to squeak. But it always squeaks for me, but it never squeaks for him. Or maybe we tinker with something and we never quite get it working right, and so we end up throwing it away. That thing that can't be diagnosed by the experts, that thing is me. That thing is you. But if we start to activate the blessings of God through gratitude, it starts a dynamic process in our lives where we are bursting with the life of God and the good things that he wants to bring to our life that we'll never recognize otherwise or never know. I read a brief story about a pilot. I'm just going to give you the cursory. This pilot, he had a route, and every day, every time he would fly over a certain area, there was a river thousands of feet below, he would look out the window at that river. One day his co-pilot said, why do you always look out the window when you pass over this area? He said, well, when I was a kid, I used to fish down there all the time. When I was fishing, I would say, one day I'd love to be a pilot. I want to fly. And now I want to be fishing. Some of us lead our lives that way. We have dreams and we dream and then those dreams come true, but then when our dreams come true, we dream of being back where we were. We're never satisfied. If we treat blessings as objects or possessions, we miscategorize them. But if we activate by acknowledging that they are blessings, it ignites the synergy, the dynamic quality of God's blessings in our lives and what he wants to do. Listen, contentment is a mighty power, and the power to be content comes from trusting in the governance of God, not labeling it as something bad or something great, but seeing all things as the governance of God and beginning to see and having eyes to see that in all things, God is at work to do great things, blessed things things in our lives that we will rightly label blessings.
enjoy the governance of God. God bless you. I hope this week is a wonderful week for you. And I hope that you sense the presence of God and feel his hand on your life and realize that he's not far away or over the rainbow, but he's in your life to do dynamically powerful things in all things in you. God bless you. Air hug, elbow bump, fist bump. Mwah.